Good afternoon, my name is Aaron Bastani. You're listening to Navara FM here on London's best radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for joining us. I'm joined in the studio today by sometime co-host and editor of Navara Media, James Butler at Pierce Penless. Hi, James. Hi. You can find all previous shows on our website, navaramedia.com, and can follow us online with Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Furthermore, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow our still relatively new and almost daily offerings on Navara Wire. That's at wire.navaramedia.com. An excellent piece on there from yesterday by Aaron James, Five Terrains for the Struggle for Mental Health, is much recommended. Today's discussion is going to look at yesterday's economic data and what it means to the middle class in 2014. Are we seeing the emergence of a lumpen middle class? So, first up, the alleged facts, threefold. These are on inflation, wages and employment. Inflation. Yesterday, the rate of inflation was seen to go up, or sorry, sorry, go down rather, to 1.6%. That's on the CPI index, Consumer Price Index. Um, and that doesn't include cost of rent and housing. That's why it's the preferred index for government, <laughs> because it is always going to be lower than the real rate of inflation. It was changed, I think, around 2000 by the Labour government. The rate uh, that includes housing, uh, rent and housing costs is around 2.5%. That's called RPI. Secondly, wages. The Office for National Statistics announced that weekly wages, including bonuses, uh, rose by 1.7% in the year to February, up from 1.4% in January. Take out bonuses and that figure is about 1.4%. Nevertheless, that figure of 1.7%, which is the same as the most favourable measure of inflation for the government, which is, as I just said, CPI, they're the same. So now they can make this argument, uh, which is inflation and wages are now on a par for the first time in six years. We aren't seeing declining real pay. They'll also predict that as the year progresses, pay will now outpace inflation. So that means the money in your pocket is no longer being devalued significantly to the kinds of commodities you're buying. So what does that mean? It means that you're not worse off even if you're working the same hours in the same job, which is obviously important to everybody who has to work. Right. So all that aside, the BBC regime broadcaster says after nearly six years of falling real wages, that's wages when indexed to inflation, because that's what matters after all. You use money to buy things. Rises in weekly earnings have finally caught up with inflation. Now, this is so close to untrue that serious questions have to be raised about what incentives there are to headline that story in such a way. To be honest, it reads like a Conservative Party press release. And actually, I'm not that unsure if it isn't precisely a Treasury press release. It looks remarkably like one I saw. What they're saying is patently not the case. Wages, when including little things like rent, are still going down. And that's even if you include bonuses. That average, of course, is also massively skewed by a return of big increases in much of the corporate world pay sector. The CEO of G4S received a 25% pay increase just this month. Talk about rewarding failure. Furthermore, it doesn't include the self-employed, who, as we'll talk about later on, are increasingly the bulk of those in private sector job creation. Now, that's a nice segue to point three, jobs. The number of people out of work in the UK has fallen by 77,000, a five-year low, 2.24 million in the three months to February, official figures indicate. So that means the unemployment rate now stands at 6.9% of the adult working population, according to the Office of National Statistics. So the picture they want to paint is this. Wages are finally going to increase in real terms. That means growth from consumer demand, which will become more sustainable. At present, it isn't. It's coming from savings and credit. Productivity is going to increase. That's in spite of no signs of it doing so for the best part of half a decade. More people are going to be in work, earning more and creating more output per hour worked. Thus, we have 
before us the British economic miracle. Now let's go back a few steps. Alan Clark, economist at Scotiabank, said that leaving political implications aside, rising real wages would increase the likelihood of a sustained economic recovery. Now here is the point in case, which is of course uh, the truth that the powerful are beholden to. At the moment, consumer spending growth is being boosted by falling savings and rising borrowing. This is an economist at Scotiabank cited in the FT three days ago. If real incomes continue to improve over the coming quarters, as we expect, then spending growth will be increasingly underpinned by solid fundamentals rather than the feel-good factor as it currently is associated with a booming housing market. In a briefing note, Consultancy Capital, uh, Cap, Consultancy Capital Economics warned that while the pay picture is beginning to brighten, improvement is likely to be gradual and could take until the end of the decade for real pay to return to the peak seen in 2008. I think that's incredibly optimistic. There's more than decent analysis from Stephen King at the Financial Times. And I'll finish with this before moving to you, James, quote, this is from Stephen King in Financial Times two days ago. It always seemed likely that the UK's elevated inflation rate in recent years would prove to be a temporary phenomenon with miserably low domestic wage growth, a bit of honesty, and low rates elsewhere. It was only a matter of time before UK inflation began to drop. Optimists will argue that the drop in inflation is consistent with the beginnings of a productivity boom, whereby the UK finally rediscovers its supply potential. In this version of events, inflation drops below wage growth, as I've already outlined, allowing working households to enjoy their first increases in living standards in years. To be clear again, living standards have been dropping for six years, until actually the beginning of 2014. The media wasn't even admitting that. Now that the evidence might be slightly to the contrary, the media and the Conservative Party are both quite happy to admit that for six years pay has been declining relative to the things you're buying with your money. The economy then gathers speed. Pessimists might point to the Eurozone's capacity to infect the UK with a nasty dose of deflation, and that's very possible, particularly if sterling continues to strengthen. They would argue that falling inflation is in fact a lead indicator of weaker growth in common wages, and in time, still lower inflation. Uh, so, James, over to you. Those are three big things that matter to people, obviously, inflation um, and jobs and, of course, uh, yeah, economic growth. Economic growth less so in terms of the material conditions of people's lives, of course, but as we've talked about in other shows, it is is important, uh, even if it's just an ideological construct, uh, macroeconomics and so on. So all of that's really important. We want to talk about the role of self-employment and this kind of self-managed middle class, which is emerging, mm. predicted by 2018 to be larger than the public sector, according to the Royal Society of Arts. Yeah. And what are the political consequences for that group? What agency could they mm. potentially mm-hmm. attempt to articulate as they become this dominant component of the labor market towards the end of the decade? James, so yesterday's numbers, what do you make of them? Well, I mean, I, th- I think there's, there, I mean, there are several ways of, of attacking this question of self-employment. Um, I think it's worth, uh, at least in part, concentrating on a way of accessing certain in-work benefits, a route um, one is forced to choose in order to access these kinds of uh, state-funded payments. It also allows, of course, the government to massage employment statistics at the same time. Um, It's also true, however, that that registering as self-employed and then contracting out one's labour to another employer uh, allows that employer to avoid certain responsibilities and obligations in work. Um, So we're likely to see this increase over time, and there are open questions about how regulated that will become. It would be an easy gesture for social democrats to make, to say, oh, we'll clamp down on this kind of stuff. But, But employment is always such a sort of rickety uh, a problem that, that, that it, it may well always fall under that sort of most nebulous of labourite political phrases, which is uh, politically impossible uh, to regulate. And politically impossible, of course, means no such thing, merely that it's 
unthinkable within the current framework of what politics does and who it's for. But I do think I do think you're right that there's something interesting going on here, um, even even if it's hard to point out directly uh, about the kind of people who are doing this, uh, and they're they're generally people who are forced into it to negotiate the rather Byzantine systems we now have around employment, uh, and it's an odd kind of symbolic gesture of accord. And it's of course also something that's generally open to the relatively prosperous portion of the working or middle class. Um, but the TUC, I guess, is is right insofar as it's also indicative of a less stable and increasingly diversified labour market. Uh, and where we differ, I think, from the TUC is seeing this is, is you know the TUC will see this as, as a degradation of a relatively static model of labor mm. um, in which a certain <laughs> section of the working class has more or less stable jobs with certain social guarantees and a reasonable I mean, if not perfectly redistributive uh, uh, central agency i.e. the state uh, so they think everything that doesn't look like this is something that's demurring from or degrading away from that perfect state and something, I, you know, I guess you could call this the, the sort of 1945 nostalgic model of capital labour relations. And I think that you or I would say that, that this isn't so, um, that if that moment ever existed quite in that way, it was a particular phase in capitalist dynamics and the intervening decades have had substantial changes in terms of capital composition, composition of the class, global influxes of labour enclosure, proletarianization and so on, uh, such that it's not a degradation that can be restored. And so I guess, you know, this should be seen as as a fundamental shift in capital labour dynamics that needs to be moved through and can be moved through in a number of different ways to ends that are either more favourable to to capital or to us. Uh, Now, I don't see these these figures, these employment figures, as being reasons (laughs) for cheerfulness, Mm. um, but rather reasons to think quite urgently about how to respond properly on terrain that exists now rather than in, in the territory of socialist nostalgia. And so, I mean, I suppose this is rather abstruse, Um, And I I think it's worth saying that there is such a thing as a capitalist mythology and a capitalist nostalgia, uh, as much as there is a a sort of lefty or sort of uh, white socialist nostalgia for 1945. Um, And the object for these nostalgias doesn't doesn't even necessarily have to have existed historically. It's usually a sort of confection of half-remembered ideas, histories, myths, memories, uh, the basic uh, substrate of ideology. And capitalist nostalgia is all about the era of entrepreneurs. It has like an American form, which I guess is is probably very familiar from from mass entertainment, mass media. But it has like a peculiarly British form as well, which is particularly about entrepreneurial ability, but also class stasis, respectability, social order, the dignity of labour. And on that point, in fact, left and right nostalgia sort of coincide, right? I mean, the socialist and capitalist nostalgia converges exactly on that that dignity of labour, good jobs for people who enjoyed their jobs, uh, and it of course includes Jags about Victorian philanthropy and so on. Mm. Um, so, so there is also the, the sort of uh, motive mm. wonder of the job creator and much of it, I guess, of the, the hue and cry about these recent figures has been about whether these newly self-employed are really entrepreneurs. And I think asking that question like that is rather a bad idea. The figure of the entrepreneur rolls up into itself all the conceits of the bourgeoisie about its place in economic action and origination. But I think what was interesting here was that the language of the Department for Work and Pensions, used in response to, to criticism about this stuff. I think some employers of the future, that's from a DWP uh, response to, to criticism about these, these. But even, you know, so that organ of the bourgeoisie, the Financial Times, when it's reporting on that RSA paper, 
and said, you know, oh, on current trends, the self-employed would overtake those in working in public sector jobs by 2018 with potentially significant political implications. But the economy may start creating more employee jobs as it recovers. Um, so th this but and may, those kind of conditional words indicate a sort of hope on the part of these institutions, a kind of hope that's not even acknowledged as, as, a, as, a, as a hope because it runs so deeply within the self-conception of the capitalist class. I mean, this is how things work, right? Entrepreneurs start their business, they get returns on their capital, then they hire more people as they grow. This is the, the basic model of how this is going, to, how, how things are supposed to work. I think it's a significant effect of the crisis, uh, of the recent crisis of which this, this is, I guess, an ancillary form, uh, is that, that this is now glossed as a may rather than a will. When you look at reporting historically, this kind of, you know, the, the response from the DWP mm. would have been, as the economy grows, these self-starters will become the employers of the future mm. rather than may mm. become the employers of the future. So I, I think this is, I think this is worth dwelling on here. The, the kind of language, the sort of you know, uh, chinks of realization that that, that, that exist in, in the, the sort of armored structure of ideology. And I think I, you know, I think I, and I think it's worth sort of just looking at when these things happen in, in you know in the way in which people conceive or talk about the economy. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, there's some stuff to talk here exactly about that self-employed class and, and what it represents, whether it's a sort of, uh, you know, a strategy to negotiate the horror of, you know, attempting to, to live. And again, I mean, the, the, the age differential, I think, is, is important here. I mean, there's a lot of sort of uh, older people setting up these, these uh, you know, these sort of little, you know, registering as self-employed. And often that's, you know, that's an attempt to negotiate around, you know, Public sector jobs they may have been laid off from, um, you know, uh, you know, ability to access those those benefits, and it, you know, there is going to be an interesting uh, question here about that other proportion as well. You know, those who are using self-employment as essentially a form of, uh, you know, auto subcontracting, right? So, so avoiding, you know, the, so companies avoiding those those uh, or defraying those expenses around sort of national insurance and so on. And tax avoidance. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, so you, you, yeah. you, there's a possibility here of having a certain section of the working class basically in work but without any workers' rights. Mm. I mean, this is a question that emerges about self-employment all the time, right? Mm. Is, is what strategy this is used to erode, um, again, the, the, those, those rights and guarantees that, that, that the TUC sort of see as having been sort of degraded continuously for the past few decades. So yeah, these, these things are all at play here. I want to talk about these TUC numbers just because listeners might not be aware of them. So the TUC announced this week, alongside these uh, these uh, figures on uh, inflation and, and jobs from the government, they announced that almost their findings found anyway. And it's very rare, as we've discussed a few times on the show, for the trade union movement to actually offer any interesting statistics to us because they tend not to look at those out of work for precisely the reason that they're, you know, they're trade unions of people in work. Um, so they said, their claim is that uh, half of the 1.2 million jobs created since the coalition came to power are accounted for uh, with self-employment um, and that the self-employed made up 44% or 540,000 of those new jobs uh, with work, work. That's pretty big numbers. Mm -hmm. Francis O'Grady, the TUC General Secretary, said the trend was not down to a rise in entrepreneurs, as you've said, starting our businesses, but reflected a shift towards insecure work, such as freelancing, with no right to paid sick leave, holiday, maternity pay, mm -hmm. or maternity pay, or leave, redundancy pay, or protection against unfair dismissal. The Resolution Foundation, which found that earnings from self-employment fell, and I tweeted this very recently, by a fifth, that's 20%. Uh, from 2006-2010. So self-employed people saw their pay, not their real pay, not adjusted for inflation, their actual pay, the pounds, 
they saw that fall before the crisis. And this is what we always, you know, we really do need to highlight this more, I think. The crisis, yes, it begins in percent. God knows where it's gone since then. Uh, and we now know, this is data uh, that was recently released by Parliament, that women in self-employed, um, so women in self don't tend to talk about statistics which don't affect their members or aren't politically um, useful. I would say alongside precarious self-employment, that big increase in private sector jobs is coming from outsourcing, where jobs are basically just being displaced from the public to the private sector and cleaning universities mm-hmm. and so on. Right? The kinds of stuff that Three Causes do, for instance, they're now in the private sector. Four years ago, they were in the... Uh, they're in the private sector for in the public sector. Uh, so I think that you take these two trends, that growth in precarious self-employment, like I said, self-employment wages are tumbling um, and outsourcing. The idea that you're going to get rising wages, right, with that, I mean, it's just bonkers. You're looking at 50% of new jobs are coming from these kinds of things, you know, and they are seeing their wages mm. smashed. So the idea that those jobs are going to see above inflation increases, I think just, not just deluded, but I think it's kind of... Um, sometimes you read stuff and it gets so little critical reception from mainstream media journalists mm. and uh, it's hard really to understand what's going on here. You know, James? Uh, I think that, I mean, that there's a couple of things here that I think are really important, right? And, you know, of course, like, obviously we're going to be the the, the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the wicked fairy at the baptism, the, the, the beggars at the feast. Um, but, but it, it, you know, it's it's really you know, astonishing to read this stuff that, that, that we'll have maybe a line or two and saying, like, well, maybe the picture's not that rosy. Um, but there is this sort of odd belief that that you know, it's by naming reality, you cause it to, to come into existence. Is that people are starving anyway? You know, simply you know, writing about it is not going to make it any worse. It might actually do something. But anyway, um, one of the things I wanted to say here is that is that. You know, you're right to say that wage growth requires uh, productivity improvement. I don't think that's coming anytime soon. And if it does, it's going to look really miserable for people, yep. you know, people who are working. And that's one of the economy. Right? But, the, but the interests of the economy are, are actually in, in sort of in terms of you know, absolute exploitation, not very good for most of us. So, so th- those interests need to need to be recognised as divergent. But but it's also to talk about the, you know this matter of improvement is also the you know, improvement in wages. And this this repeats a, a pattern that's familiar to most of us by now. It's a, it's a pattern that's, that's, that's perhaps more complex than people often allow. It's, you know, we'll, we'll often hear this sort of the question of the north-south divide. It's a class divide as much as it is anywhere else. It just so happens that there are greater concentrations of the bourgeoisie in the south. Look, I mean, there, there are many, many places, many parts of London suburbs and you know, beyond that sort of belt around London, which you know, have extraordinary uh, indices of deprivation. So, so again, it's a, it's a class thing. But, but generally, I mean, in terms of geographical distribution, certainly uh, the, the rise in wages is largely concentrated in the south. Mm. The other thing that, that's going on here is is this this matter of yeah, and you have the, the flip side to this is is the other headline that's been happening recently, right? I mean, this uh, Ian Duncan Smith led uh, war uh, on benefits, baffling, but perhaps uh, na- <laughs> ideologically naked position there. Um, you know, and and that question of food banks, right? And food banks are becoming a sort of a totemic issue for the social democratic left. As, I mean, as it should be. Um, you know, but the, the, I think the point to draw out here is is actually that it's quite difficult at this point to claim benefits and we should look quite carefully at the sort of draconian sanction activity that's that's going on in job centres uh, which seems to to go on for longer uh, is harder to redress uh, and virtually impossible to reverse once it, you know, once it's happened. So if you could juggle your way out of having to interact with the job centre by you know undertaking self-employment you would 
Uh, I mean, it seems very clear to me that you know, if you can juggle it in that way and get in away tax from tax credits and yeah, so on. Yeah, 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 and get away from from the job center and or having to 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 you know to to report you know weekly in many cases. Um, but again, you know, this is because very much um, striated by class. We should also, however, talk about the role of some PCS unionized staff in this, and this is going to grow to be a real conflict. I mean, a real conflict between those with security of tenure mm. and those who are in and out of work or changing kinds of jobs. Because I think you were alluding to, it's the former, those who are in relatively stable careers, relatively stable jobs, the jobs that last for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, it, it, it's those who will see the benefit of wage growth. And, and you know, and for, for a very large part, this this sort of uh, uh, talk of, of increase in, 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 real, in wages in real terms now is not something that's going to affect ma- the majority of people who are in the service sector. Those wages are, are, are stagnant or declining. Mm. Uh, it's people who are, who, who are in you know, relatively solid working class careers, middle class, you know, sociological middle class, whatever, uh, careers, you know, you know, and often you know, public sector um yeah, all, all various parts of the private sector. People who are in who, in those jobs for a while, those are the people who are going to see the benefits of wage growth. It won't be the people who are sort of around the edges, in and out of work, because that, that returns to you know, a relative, <laughs> relatively low base rate uh, of wage. So, so the problem here is that, that there is this this increasing divide between what you might call sort of. Uh, uh, Relatively proletarianized workers, and what you might call labor aristocracy, uh, and you know, I, you know, there are times I, I, I tend to avoid, but you know, the, this is a, a moment where they have real, real application, uh, and and you know, it's they're, they're not conditions that would have historically been you know particularly unusual. You know, basic security of tenure in your job, workers' rights. This kind of stuff is going to look more and more rare over time. And the question for the mainstream unions is going to be: Are you going to defend what is basically a shrinking client base? Um, you know, who are going to be these people in, in, in you know, relatively secure jobs? Or are you going to fundamentally change what you're doing uh, and start to look at you know, these, what, what I've been saying through the show, which are what is a fundamental change in class composition and the way that people work? You can't keep looking back nostalgically mm. and hoping for the return to this moment, hoping to undo, rewind, unpick you know, Thatcherism and all Blairism and you know, the decade since this is not possible. It's mm. not possible. You'd have to you would have to literally spin the world in reverse on its axis for this to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, but these people are absolutely blind to it. Mm. I mean, look, we could get we could get you know Len McCluskey here or Dave Prentice or yeah, God knows who from you know these two trade union general secretaries for listeners who aren't aware of that. I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't there. Not particularly uh, expert at what they do. Um, you know, you could get these kinds of people in here and I think the same you have the same problem say with McCluskey now I don't know McCluskey I don't know his project this guy I don't know if he's got delusions of grandeur I don't know if he's just in it for the cash I have no idea I'm not going to judge him he may be useful to us one day I don't know I know this the guy's going to have a job for what five ten years now in this way he imitates actually Mark Carney at the Bank of England Mark Carney does not give a flying F right what happens to house prices or mortgage rates in five or ten years' time. His contract runs out in five years. He doesn't care if the UK economy collapses, right? He couldn't care less, right? He really couldn't care less. And that, and they really cultivates the culture of short-termism, these kinds of appointments. Same with McCluskey, right, with the unions, right? And you've had this real centralising of power in the, the, the trade unions in this country and elsewhere since, uh, let's say, since the Second World War. It's a very different picture to that which preceded 1945 because the, the nature of the state capital labour social compacts in the kind of social democratic post-war context that's given all these guys you know real power so they're there for five ten years and they can sort of walk away and actually mccluskey doesn't really need an answer to these problems he doesn't really need an answer 
because you know it's a job at the end of the day, and he can he can leave it. And they're they're remunerated incredibly well. I mean, people talk about you know I I just dropped the uh, the twenty five percent pay increase for the chief exec of G four S right as reward for failure. <laughs> Nobody's being rewarded for more failure than the leaders of the trade unions right now mm-hmm. in terms of what they're getting for their members. Right? They would if they were if they were uh, FTSE two two fifty or FTSE one hundred chief execs, they'd be fired. The shareholders would be like trying to stab them with their biros. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even. Uh, you know, I'm really, I, I, I mean, believe I, those FTSE shareholders have you know Mont Blancs and oh, gold pens. My Yeah, <laughs> no, but you know, the the, the 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 idea that you know you criticise them and then you have somebody like yeah, again with the, the best one in the world, I like Owen Jones. But you know, Owen Jones, don't attack them. Look, if these were shareholders and a PLC being treated as rather than workers in a trade union, they would get this person out by the. Tops of their underpants. My apologies. That'll be deleted. Go on. Well, I mean, I think you know, I think you're absolutely right here. I think I think we don't need to draw the analogy here between you know the uh, you know different sides of, of the capital labour divide. I think you know simply in terms of you know <laughs> basic strategy, you would just eject you know or, or you know it, you know if you look very you know clearly at your interests as you know a, you know, a standard organised unionised uh, uh, worker. I mean, if it's you know generally look kind of very clearly at that and you know the the existence of this sort of bizarre uh, hierarchy. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems you know, bafflingly um, not in not in one's interest. But there's no mechanism for removal anyway. Mm. I mean, you know, look, I'm not going to spend the rest of the show banging on about the trade unions. But go to a single union conference, and you will see very, very clearly the notion of any sort of uh, democratic. I mean, this is where this is where you know I find Owen Jones absolutely objectionable. Actually, mm. is this notion that oh the trade union movement is the biggest democratic movement? Blah blah blah. It's a lie. But I mean, find, a find me find me a union it's conference that's remotely. Democratic. It's not true, um, but, but there you go. I mean, that's that's it's a barefaced lie. That's that's how the unions work. I'm yeah. sure he believes it. I'm sure he does. It's um, not true. It's just no. not true. Um, anyway, but to, I mean, to, to return to this question, and, and actually a question, I guess that's that's operating on, on you know un, under these things is, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, but the the latest sort of um, slogan the Labour Party is, is, is playing with is a uh, cost of living crisis, right? And so every Labour MP or you know, uh, uh, cabinet member is tweeting furiously a uh, cost of living crisis. Is that right? hashtag or? Yeah, well, yeah, actually. Yeah. I mean, Ed Bulls, uh, Ed Bulls has been hashtagging uh, everything. Twitter, with, you know, so selfie with cost of living crisis. The on Twitter the expert. But, yeah. <laughs> with his name, yeah. But I guess like, is there, is there, so this is, this is going to be the slogan, actually. I think this is going to be the slogan probably for the next year or so and leading up to the general election. This will be the train on which presumably the Labour Party attempts to fight the general election and probably loses it, right? It is to say, oh, cost of living crisis, cost of living crisis. Um, I guess, but, but my question is whether there is not something more fundamental here. It's not, you know, uh, you know cartels jacking up prices, and big six energy companies and so on. And it's too easy an answer. It's not about, you know, wailing that capital is being nasty instead of being nice, as it should do. You know, all of that is a, a really, really weak response. Now, there certainly is a cost of living crisis, but, but it's a crisis, as you were saying, that has always been with us. It has always been with us. Uh, it's only an ancillary effect of the crisis in general. The difficulties of living when everything is being extracted from you at every angle has come to envelop a slightly larger proportion of the populace. This is not, after all, news for, 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 you know, for many of us. The cost of living crisis is not a new thing. It has always been there. I mean, you know, the question uh, that I want to propose to, to you know, our, our you know, reformist friends you know, is whether it's sufficient to ramp it back to uh, acceptable levels. 
And you can bang on about you know a crisis of the left, and no one no one likes doing it more than me, believe me. Um, but but it's more than just a crisis of the left that doesn't have you know decent strategy. It's about a left that does not understand contemporary work. Uh, it does not understand the world in which it lives. It's not about sort of deprecated policy ideas. It's not about you know uh, the the five policies that would you know make Britain, I don't know, cheery, uh, whatever is going on in the wonk laboratories of you know labor headquarters um it, it really is <laughs> not about you know inept strategy or failure of will the thoroughgoing isolation from real life and this is really fundamental mm. it's really really fundamental it is it is about and i mean i guess one of the things that that, that intriguing about this at the moment it's one of the the things that i guess is floating around some of the stuff uh, that, that that we've been saying throughout this is is that question of recon Position, recomposition uh, of the working class, and you know, I mean, the, the thing here is is a question about historic periodization, which I think is always a difficult question. Um, it, I think it's right to say that, that the class is in you know, is shifting in terms of its composition, but I think it's also right to say it's always been shifting. There, there was never actually the the sort of ideal uh, 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 factory based proletarian. Uh, 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 you know, movement certainly within Britain, it was always rather more sort of heterogeneous and, and, and uh, uh, diverse than that. And of course, uh, you know the, the, that that difference and, and that multiplicity actually got subsumed under the figure of the factory militant as the ideal form of the working class. But it was never really, you know, there, there were always these sort of odd compositions of, in, uh, of the class. And yeah, you know, I think I think it's quite good that that, that idea has been jettisoned. But it's an idea, again, I mean, and this is what I was saying at the top of the show, is that this sort of socialist sort of 1945 Ken Loach nostalgia, it, it really is... Poor Ken. It's so easy to pick on him, James. I'm not, I'm not picking Poor on him. Ken. I'm picking on the idea. The That's idea is rejectionable. A, it's when there are people our age that say the same uh, well, yeah, things. I mean, I, mean, I just find, I find that completely I find, I find ridiculous. These are, the, these are the people who... who, who, who <laughs> Come on. I mean, nice guy. Nice enough guy. Great filmmaker. Like, like, hey, well, um, but, you know, the, 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 there, is a, there is an odd thing here, right? I mean, and and I think you've heard upon it actually. Like the, the, the operations of nostalgia in that way for people who, you know, <laughs> I mean, but the best will in the world. Like the, you know, a lot of the, the kids who, who are sort of you know tap dancing about this sort of you know let's re- return to 1945. Uh, that sort of reanimate the corpse of the mid-century labour movement. Uh, these are people who don't even remember major, let alone Thatcher. I mean, this is you know really astonishing. Um, you know, the, why is it that this this politics, this politics of nostalgia, has such a purchase, um, and I think you know, I think it's reasonable to say that there is a sense in which, um, and and it's something that I, you know, I've been thinking about recently because I've been sort of you know, looking at the way in which people have changed, and people I know, and people I've organised with, people I've worked with, people, you know, whatever, over the course of the past you know, five, six, seven years, um, you know that. that that feeling of, of uh, you know, uh, thrownness or inauthenticity about their political action, right? Uh, the, the the desire here is for some sort of much grander uh, political struggle. Uh, you know, a nostalgia for the eighties, a nostalgia uh, for the mid-century labour movement, in, in which they're you know, it, you know, retro, you know, <laughs> retrospectively, or there is this sort of retrojection, uh, you know, and, and, and a belief. 
that there were these institutions to which there was an absolute sense of belonging, an absolute sense that that you had history on your side. Well, that is only possible to think about about movements that are historical. Um, You know, so so I think you know it's almost you know you you speak to people who are who have have been around you know who are. A few generations older, and you know, if I think if you're, they're being real honest, you know, at the time, you know, that question of authenticity was always open. It's always been open in all political movements. Is this sufficient? Is this real? Is this true? Are we doing? You know, is this? You know, uh, uh, you know, his, historically it would have been so much better. You know, that sense of, of degradation and you know, whatever that's always been there. Isn't, you know, so you're not going to get this historical return. Uh, you know, in that sense. So, so I mean, I've, I'm you know, I'm going to try and stop ranting. No, it's a lot. It's a great rant. The, 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 I mean, you know, the, so this question, really, I want, I want people to sort of tear their gaze away from the, the kind of really boring, you know, you know uh, pseudo-socialist or, or, or you know, uh, 1945-ish past and start looking at the future. I mean, start looking at, the, you know, it might be a good start to start looking at the present and, and then we'll build, you know, to looking at the future from there. But, but you know, the present is very, very different. Mm-hmm. There is a change in class composition. There is a change in the way that we work. There is a change in you know the, the the involvement of global flows of capital there is a change in the way in which you know the, the capitalist class does its work <laughs> to be attempting to you know reanimate again the corpse of this movement that is dead and you know carrying corpses on your back is a sure way to lose any kind of race against mm. any competitor mm. i mean uh, i know you're not a big fan of it well uh, you are you are a fan uh, sorry i shouldn't put words into your mouth you've had criticisms of it uh, q, q by luther blissett right mm. and th- mm. that talks about you know the Anabaptists in the 16th century and it's quite a shambling sort of process when they mm. take Munsur and it's yeah. about individuals and personal relationships and things you know get compromised and screwed up and that's essentially how politics and history has always worked you know the idealism yeah. is clean kind of um, uh, completely sort of uh, white so yeah it's, it's always it's always a myth it's never the way things work on the substantive points Election. You said the Conservative election. I personally think Labour will win the next general election. I think they get a small majority. If they don't, I mean, I just want to say, if they don't, I mean, all the data for any political scientist is so massively stacked in their favour. Mm-hmm. If they don't get a majority in the next general election, it is the biggest parliamentary failure of the Labour Party, I think, since their existence. Because if you look at the data out of tw- the 2010 general election, uh, they, the Conservatives didn't get a majority. Uh, and that was in light of fighting incumbent government that was very unpopular, probably the most unpopular prime minister since Anthony Eden. They were incumbents for 13 years. That worked against Labour. The Tories massively outspent them. Um, you know, they had the only paper in favour of the Labour Party was the Daily Mirror. The entire print media was against the Labour Party in 2010. Yet the Conservatives couldn't win a majority. They haven't won a majority since 1992. Mm. So, all that to one side. If the Conservatives won a majority in 2015, Ed Miliband is the biggest failure of a Labour Party leader in the history of the Labour the, the, the Parliamentary Labour Party. I mean, I, I genuinely, you put that out there. If, if Labour failed to win a majority, that man is unprecedented in how he's managed to fail in his position. Secondly, cost of living crisis. I think this is important because you're right, of course, for wage labourers, there's always a cost of living crisis. I mean, otherwise, they'd be bourgeois, they wouldn't have to work. You know, you have to work to live. Um, and if you don't work, you die. I mean, you know. so of course, there's, a, there's an imminent crisis within the wage, the capital wage relation for the wage labourer. Uh, but I, I do think there's an important point, which is this. Um, with the adoption of the Global South, as I've touched upon so many times on the show, into the global labour market after 89, that meant that you could have low wage increases in the global north, the developed advanced capitalist economies of the global north, Western Europe, North America, etc. Because cheap consumer durables were now being made 
elsewhere. They were being made in China, India, Malaysia, the Philippines, etc., etc. Um, so all of that meant you had, you know, you low wage increases. We've had pretty stagnant wages actually since the late 1970s, but you also since 2000. That meant that actually people felt like they had more money than they really did. Now, since 2008, we know that's changed. As we talked about with Ashok Kumar when he was on the show talk, talking about China, Chinese labor struggles, these guys are getting more than 10% pay increases year on year now, um, have consequences for the global economy, not just in terms of the base, not just in terms of the economics, but also in terms of ideology, the superstructure. Because the ideology of postmodern, apathetic, you know, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, from Jameson to Mark Fisher, was based upon cheap consumer durables. If they don't exist anymore, you can't mm. pacify people, right? Simple as that. So those kind of really flaky critiques go out of the window, I think. Cost of living crisis does matter, and I think it really changes the conversation. Neil Lawson last week was saying, you know, I thought actually some of it, I, I liked what, a few things he said, and we probably differ on that. I, I, mm-hmm. I liked a few things he said. But, you know, he said, for instance, how big does the workers' plasma screen TV have to be, you know? And I thought, this is nonsense, you know, this is really nonsense. People aren't buying white goods like they used to anymore because of how, you know, I mean, we're seeing massive declines in real pay. I mean, that's not how many books can you buy, how many holidays can you It's kind of affluenza critique of capitalism. You know, and that really, for me, that sounded off and it sounded like he hadn't really been keeping up to date with things since, oh, wait, that's not personal criticism, that's a political difference. Service work, you talked about uh, the sort of, you know, the rarefied the subject of the worker, the industrial worker, um, as the kind of, um, you know, the, the exemplary figure within the polis uh, for Britain uh, after 1945. Marx talks about this on The Capital, no? He says that more people work in service work in the 1870s in Britain than in manufacturing. Because, of course, you have reproduction of these huge stately homes. and what's, you know, they, have, they have butlers and maids and cooks. So, actually, the idea that most people work in services isn't new. Huh? That was the case in Britain in the 1870s. And guess what? Those workplaces were incredibly difficult to organise. Actually, they were so impossible to organise, the only thing that made them political was the First World War. You know, you know, the anarcho-syndicalist kind of spread of you know, these ideas actually didn't really get anywhere in a lot of these workplaces. But finally, utopian imagination. Um, uh, and we were talking about, you know, people looking nostalgically to the past, we should look to the future. And David Harvey, I thought, two weeks ago, made a great point. He said history now is moving, history and technology, technological change, is moving too quickly to even conceive of a utopian possibility. Um, certainly with regards to technology. I think there's something in that. And, and you look, I, I, what I don't really get about this kind of nostalgia is the possibilities we have at our fingertips from contemporary society are absolutely mind-boggling. You know, you watch a film like... Um, What's that from? Elysium. And they have those printers where people are having, you know, with regards to what we're going to be able to do with 3D printing, um, you know, uh, nanotechnology, things like stem cell technology. I mean, we really are going to be able to do the kinds of things you see in that film within the next couple Mm. of decades. The question is, what kinds of, what political economy will that technology be embedded within? Is it going to be one like Elysium, where only a certain class of people are allowed to use it, full scarcity within abundance, as capitalism always works, or will we have a politics that keeps up with the velocity of change we're currently seeing in technology? If we do, that means that incumbent organisations, politics, policies, maybe even nation states, have to be jettisoned. It turns again to that that question you were saying at, at the top of the show, that again this is you know the the political situation the political economic situation in which we live is not uh simply a, a somewhat debased uh version of 
uh, how society existed a few decades ago. It's, it has undergone you know, some fundamental changes. This change is not always obvious. Um, and the question here is, is not you know, whether we can sort of turn back the clock, but how we move through uh, those changes now. And, and, and that, you know, again, uh, the, the, the conflict here, the conflict between labour and capital, fundamentally, um, it, it, that conflict has certain kinds of resolution. This is, this is in fact, you know, where I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by sort of teleological deterministic readings uh, of capital labour struggles, because I think it's, I think it's invariably true that capital will, capitalism um, <laughs> will destroy itself. It's just, you know, again, and this is a, a point that Harvey raised when, when we were interviewing him. Uh, it, it, the question is, is whether it will destroy us along with it. And I think that quite, looks quite likely now. So that, again, that question of redress, that question of how we, how we move uh, through, through, through this conflict, through, through, you know, this is sort of these series of crises. It, you know, is fundamental. I don't actually think. I'm, I mean, you know, I, or I question at least uh, the the notion that yes, okay. On the one hand, I think you know the traditional model uh, of trade union struggle, right? So one that relies on uh, the ability of the class as a unified uh, entity to assert itself through. Uh, its historical institutions, such as the trade union movement, uh, such as the Labour Party, I, I think that model of what of how things have worked historically is is actually uh, not quite historically accurate. Um, I think those institutions often play a dual role. Um, they play a role that it, it, you know that is very much to do with the reproduction uh, of of the working class as a working class within capitalism. Uh, very much to do with that uh, sort of standard kind of social democratic role. Um, I think as time has gone on, they have they have you know, rather ossified from any kind of potential they ever had to be anything different, um, and certainly that's I mean that that's absolutely true of the Labour Party these days. I think it's generally true of the trade union movement. Um, <coughs> on the other hand, I, I I'm I'm you know, rather suspicious of of any kind of of movement that says okay, what what we actually need is to to jettison the idea of the, this kind of conflict and look at the most sort of the ways in which capitalism is mutating itself um, that promises some sort of emancipatory or liberatory uh, 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 possibility within capitalism, right? So the, this this notion that that uh, uh, we will look, <laughs> say that 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 so three so D printing is a good example. And, it's one that's a complex one because it, it says, oh, okay, well, we'll we'll, we'll uh, eliminate uh, uh, scarcity, eliminate scarcity. Uh, this, of course, is not you know the, the problem. The problem with these things is never scarcity; it's distribution, and this is true with food in particular. <clears throat> we we live amid huge abundance, and yet people starve. This question is again; it's not about you know the, the simple possibility of capital, you know, in, in its increasing velocity uh, of technological change. Uh, that itself does not present a solution. It's a question of like how we can grasp the velocity of tech, technological change and wrest it away uh, from from. from from you know production for exchange, um, from you know the, the you know the the, the you know, what is fundamental the, the question of uh, the conception of a human being as as, as a, a vector that sells uh, a certain quantity of labour power. I mean this is this is you know the, the fundamental political struggle. It sounds so abstract that it's very difficult to grasp in these terms. I think it has like realizable and and, and obvious implications. Um, you know I, I, that question of you know the, the, 
and again, the, you know, I try to avoid talking about sort of robots and futures. You leave that to me, don't you? I, I do leave that to yeah. you because I, you know, it, it can leave on sounding slightly ridiculous. Um, but, um, but, but one of the things here is, is of course, uh, I think it's interesting to see the kind of uh, you know acts of imagination that go on around this stuff. Uh, and the, the stuff that happens in Hollywood, I mean, you mentioned Elysium, there are, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of these sort of uh, 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 futures, these sort of uh, technological fantasy futures uh, uh, created every week, so, you know, reasonable or unreasonable degrees of sort of realistic or unrealistic, whatever. But they're usually dystopian. They're usually dystopian. Um, you know, partly because you know, utopian films tend not to make for very good cinema because it gets rather still and placid. Um, but, but, but there, there is this, this sort of you know, somewhat disastrous uh, sense, and I think it's an impending sense, I think it's something that exists within sort of the cultural uh, imagination, the cultural sort of habitus, is, is, is this notion that you know, technological change has something rather sinister about it mm. because it's, it's technological change in the hands of the very kind of people who have used technological change historically to further sort of um, abject and exploit uh, the vast majority of us. You know, so, so the, you know, again, the, the question of, of, of technological control, ownership of, uh, of technology is, is, is again a question of, of, of the overcoming of scarcity. Um, but a question of distribution, and of course these these questions are posed in a more general sense, of, you know, in that in that sort of economic issue, um, but, but also that environmental issue as mm. well. I mean, this is again I mean, we return to these themes uh, uh, quite often, but you know, uh, the danger of sounding apocalyptic, um, you know, that point that you make about uh, short termism mm. in terms of. Uh, those who hold political office, those who hold, you know, the, these offices, these extremely well remunerated offices at the head of trade unions, at the head of, uh, you know, boards of negotiations, who run companies, who are in government, um, these are, you know, that that you know that are not only short term in terms of, you know, the the direct referent of the economy, they are short term in terms of the mere fact of human existence, mm. uh, and and that is, I mean, that is that endures, you know, that is real crisis, and and again, I don't know how to talk about this crisis really. I don't know how to talk about you know, this crisis in, in, in wandering their hills, crying penitentia You know, this is you know the danger here is is of course you know is is sounding so absurd um, that one becomes ignored and and you know so that there there is a I think a real you know, a task that lies open to us is, is finding a way to talk about. Uh, <laughs> continuing human existence, uh, continuing human existence in a state that is not abjection and misery, mm. um, and and doing it, you know, doing it in such a way uh, that that one doesn't sound, you know, as if you know you're waiting for the mothership to come and beam you up. I mean, this actually ties into. I think we've got just over ten minutes left here on. Navarro Media, we're on Resonance One Four Point Four FM, London's number one radio station. Around ten minutes, we'll get some concluding remarks. I think. In a minute, I want to talk about this end of capitalism thing, right? Yeah, people go end of capitalism. I mean, I think obviously, obviously, capitalism. What does this even mean? But yeah, the, the pr- pr- predominantly industrial mode of capital we've had, I think, as David Harvey touched upon, since the 19th century, um, and the norms that has, you know, um, wage labour, etc. Um, you have to reproduce your life. You live through in buying goods and services on markets. You have to sell your labour on a market. Those are all quite new things, and I think, of course, one day they'll no longer exist. For, for much of the world, they didn't actually exist until well into the 20th century. In terms of how much further can capitalism grow, I think if you look at, for instance, India, China, they haven't even begun, actually, 
with regards to some of the kind of what you might call productive substitutions. That's where labour and land are used in, t- in terms of valorising capital. They haven't, especially India, that's 1.3 billion people, hasn't even really begun. Africa, barely scratched the surface. Nigeria by 2050 is going to have a population of 400 million people. That's if it stays together as a, as a coherent nation state. I doubt it will. Uh, but countries like Tanzania, 150 million people. Ethiopia, 150 million people. These are going to be massive nation states, huge populations, and they'll be me- meccas for capital investment. The point is, of course, can the environment survive that long? Um, I- I'd say those will provide growth until probably well into this century. Uh, can the environment last that long is another question. Uh, although, you know, look, at the end of the day, humans have survived a number of massive climactic changes. There's no reason why they can't do another. Uh, and also, if you look at, for instance, things like, uh, you know, again, this is where I sound a bit bonkers, you know, space travel. Um, and I'm not talking about colonization and things like that. I'm talking about mineral extraction, for instance. It's perfectly possible we might be able to extract various minerals, precious metals, and so on from uh, beyond the Earth's orbit, again, within the next couple of decades. I mean, that seems reasonable. Um, and if that happens, then we have perhaps something of a kind of, um, what do you call it, maybe like a tranquilizer for some of the worst excesses of climate change. But clearly, the average Indian, the average person in China, South Asia, Southeast Asia, let alone Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, which is going to see its population double over the course of this century. Clearly, these people cannot have the same standards of living as the average person in the EU or the US. They can't even actually have the same standards of living as somebody right now in, say, Turkey. They can't because there's just simply not, there's not enough land and energy on the face of the earth. Um, that's simply not plausible. Uh, so like you say, I think the big impediment here to perpetual capital accumulation is environmental. That There are the opportunities for, for market and capital expansion, like I say, and increasingly in Africa, but also, as has been the case for decades, India and China. Concluding remarks. I mean, mm-hmm. I want to talk about, we probably won't have enough time was this idea of uh, free housing and guaranteed social wage. Because, look, let's just quickly rewind. The two blocks that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, uh, outsourcing and this kind of self-managed, self-employed, uh, lumpen bourgeois, uh, are going to become very significant by the end of this decade. Those two alongside people on benefits, primarily in disability benefits and so on, make up a much, much larger block than those in public sector unions. They lie somewhere between entrepreneurs, the lumpen proletariat, the petty bourgeoisie, and the, you know, the highly exploited, the least, you know, the, the most marginalised rather in society. However, collectively, they have little historical ties to the trade union movement or the Labour Party. And whilst in some senses, some of them are business interests, that's a very different kind of business interest to the one which funds major parties and is wine and dined with in- unseen frosty at 10 Downing Street. This actually is um, evident in some comments by Nigel Farage about the CBI. He was smart enough. He was he, the CBI attacked him on leaving the EU. He said the CBI is corporatist. You know, this guy sounds like he's from Occupy LSX. He's entirely right. He's the first politician in British mainstream politics that has given the CBI its appropriate name in the last couple of decades. So if that block is going to grow and be significantly larger than public sector unions, it's not represented by any major political party. What kinds of policies and politics might animate it. I think that's really important because it means we're ahead of the curve for once um, and like returning to a pre thatcherite uh, mode of political mm. economy for the left. James, so hey, it's five minutes. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think actually that to return to this figure of self-employed uh, as uh, a sort of uh, uh, day star, an indicator of, a, of some sort of future. Um, 
I think I think the experience of self-employment in that sense, you know, and particularly in the sense that we've been discussing it, is in, either in terms of sort of negotiating the the, the horrors of, of of benefit claiming, you know, right, to, to sort, of sort of massage oneself out of confrontation with the job centre, um, or as a subcontractor, as someone who's sort of stripped of standard workers' rights, these kind of things, um, you know, as a way to negotiate you know, in, in, in terms of older people, uh, you know the inability to get hired once you're over sort of 50 years of age or so. Uh, the, all of these things are connected of labour power, right? So the consequences of this, consequences of this, of being self-employed, is that realisation that, that, you know, yes, it's true, you do confront the capitalists in, in the marketplace with only your labour power to sell. This becomes very obvious. It also means a disaggregation of sort of traditional blocks that make up the, the, the traditional left, as you're saying. So these things get sort of disaggregated from each other, right? So, so the, the, you know, the, the sympathy one might have felt for, for you know, a, a, a comrade in, in the public sector, sort of, you know, that, that, that diminishes a bit, you, know, you start to feel je- jealousy instead, and this is what I was saying in terms of security of tenure, uh, in terms of in terms of jobs earlier. Um, but it also means that it, you know, and I think that the interesting thing is that you have no sort of sense of a cohesive investment um, in the system as it stands, right? I mean, you you know, it's not as if like you're probably not paying into a pension. Um, you're probably um, trying to juggle you know, how you you work with in terms of national insurance, in terms of you know, payment of tax, stuff like that. It, it becomes much, much easier to see um, exactly how you're being exploited in those circumstances. So, yes, the possibility of, of you know, people in, I suppose, beyond that question of self-employed, in non-traditional uh, jobs, non-traditional jobs, these are, these are going to you know, vastly outnumber um, those in in that kind of traditional, uh, you know, uh, standard twentieth century style job, and yes, it's among that sort of uh, reformulation of the working class, of, of of that sort of relation to jobs, jobs that one changes rapidly, uh, you know, jobs in which you know you are not directly employed, jobs in which uh, you know you have sort of. Uh, you know, no access to standard in-work benefits. Those will become, you know, the matrix of demands. And those demands, I think you're right, they will be demands about housing, um, particularly, I think, <laughs> in Britain, which is you know, remarkably screwed in that sense. Um, but but across Europe as well, I think this is fundamental. Question of a guaranteed basic income? Mm, not entirely certain about it. But yes, you're right that there will be an awareness that the kind of wages that people are getting are going are still not sufficient uh, because precisely they are the people who don't see the benefit from from the kind of increases we've seen recently. I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, you, we know we know that there's a one of the crises. Doesn't mean it's a terminal crisis of capitalism. We know there's a crisis of capital, the capital wage relation because capitalism increasingly needs less and less labour power in order to produce goods and services because of automation. Robots fix capital. That's documented by Marx and the Grundrisse, 1861. Um, the point is, of course, and that means more and more people are incapable of living. They, haven't, they can't earn a wage. So unless we can come up with a way of ensuring that these people have a way of reproducing their lives without having to take recourse to... Now, that could mean a maximum working week of 15 hours a week and having wages at £30 an hour. I don't know. There's a number of ways you do it, but that's a reality we have to work with. Guaranteed social wages, one. And like, yeah, like you say, housing's another. I think we've not even begun, actually, in, in what that looks like and, and some of the applications in terms of big data, how that's going to work with public transport. We're going to see increasingly interesting bespoke forms of public transport, right? You might be somewhere to be able to be picked up and, you know, it really 
uh, I mean, some of these wonks are coming up with some really amazing, astonishing possibilities with how public transport works in, let's say, 10, 15 years' time. The point is, does it work for its users who pay for it, or is it going to work for its owners who are also subsidised, they tend to be subsidised by government? Mm. I think that's a really big point. So I think free transport, uh, free free, uh, free housing are two big places to start alongside the current social wage. James, as ever, thank you very much. Cheers. My name's Aaron Bastan. This is Navarro Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. <laughs>